one of my earliest kind of connections that I made between music and race and also um, this feeling of being protected by complete strangers because I was in the middle of a crowd of people I I must have been about six or seven in Trafalgar Square and um, I could only see legs and one of the big lions it was the time it was the end of a Aldermaston March from I think it was the steps of St Martin in the Fields Paul Robeson was singing and this was the first time that he'd been able to leave America because he was under house arrest in a way country arrest you know I just remember his voice coming over the crowd this great wonderful rolling booming voice and looking up at the lions and sort of feeling safe because I was amongst, even though I was amongst strangers, because I knew that they were all my family. So that all of those things have impacted on my life experience, feelings of solidarity with other people and also my connection to music being an important part of the fight back. Ruth Gregory was born in 1950 in West Wickham, Greater London. Her grandmother was a suffragette and her parents early members of CND. In 1976, she would make her own mark on the world, using music to change the cultural landscape. Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman, and for the next few weeks, I'll bring you previously unheard stories about amazing women who've changed society. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you like what you hear, give us a rating and a review. Even better, share it with your friends. This is our fourth series, and it is a special one, as the stories come from the Museum of Youth Culture archives. So my name is Lisa. I work for the Museum of Youth Culture, where I am the archive projects manager. The Museum of Youth Culture is an emerging museum that celebrates and preserves youth culture over the past hundred years, using photography, ephemera and personal stories. In 2020, I was approached by Lisa to collect 10 stories about women activists and youth culture for their project Growing Up in Britain. As a museum, we were working with this amazing photographic archive for a really long time, but arguably the biggest change in our journey to becoming a museum of youth culture was launching our Grown Up in Britain campaign. Uh, And it came out of this discussion around what is the future museum going to look like? How do we want to tell the story of teenage life? And how can we best do that? And our photographers are amazing. They tell these kind of really evocative pictures about a time and place. Um, and and they're often shot by young people learning their trade by photographing their friends, their family, or the scenes that they're involved with. But they don't tell the whole picture. And that's actually quite a big brief to try and say that we're trying to collect and tell 100 years of youth culture. So what we started doing in 2019 is we started inviting the public to send in their photographs and their stories of growing up. 
with the idea that everyone's been young so everyone can be part of the Museum of Youth Culture. And it's a really nice way to uh, open up the museum and build a museum from the ground up rather than us saying this is what youth culture is. We're actually letting people tell that story for themselves. But it's also a great passport with which to travel across the UK uh, and meet lots of people and really expand out of our London bubble because we've always been based in London. Now, initially, setting the record straight was kind of a really big project to kind of uh, push Grown Up in Britain forward for the first time. And it was going to look at traveling across the UK and looking at underrepresented communities in the museum's collections. We got the funding in February 2020. Um, and uh, we started planning and then the lockdown hit. So that idea of traveling across the UK just wasn't possible. So we went back to the drawing board and we, were how, we still have the same aim. We want to expand the collections. We want to look at what stories are underrepresented in our collections. And we want to find exciting ways of collecting those stories that's about working collaboratively. Lisa commissioned 10 oral historians in total, covering a wide range of stories from 80s and 90s Asian underground music scene to black women and subcultures. And of course me. This week I'm bringing you Ruth's story, who at 25 became a pivotal member of the Rock Against Racism movement. But her story begins all the way over in Australia. Yeah, I, I, I mean, in my teenage years, I was in Australia. So I went to Australia when I was nine and grew up there and came back when I was 17. So I, that whole formative period of being, you know, when you learn, you learn about who you are. That happened in Australia, those teenage years. And and also at the same time, I learned about Aboriginal history because through my parents, because we never learned it at school. We learned English history up until the, the English went to Australia. You know, we learned about the kings and queens and things like that. So it wasn't, uh, it was a really one-sided white view of history. But um, my parents always made sure I had books about Aboriginal history. So I was very aware of that. Ruth found her access to music was as limited as her history lessons. She listened to folk music because that was what her parents liked, but she was eager for more. The music was extremely white and all of it came from outside Australia. You know, never heard any Aboriginal music, for example. So... Um, I started getting interested in imports from the US, soul, R&B, blues, Otis Redding, you know. Yeah, that's that's where my journey started and my interest in, I suppose, the connection between radical politics and music. So as well as that, Bob Dylan, a lot of the um, artists around the anti-war movement, Vietnam War movement. And uh, Australia had conscription, so that was very, very prescient on the the kind of struggles that were going on then, the resistance to conscription. My brother was uh, conscripted, but then he kind of went on this boat to escape <laughs> to yeah. New I mean, you know, like people did all sorts of things. People were in jail because they refused to go. You know, there was a big movement 
which was started, co-started by my mother, actually, SOS. It was called Save Our Sons. There was a lot of uh, repression around that, um, you know, the treatment of prisoners uh, who were objected to going, who refused to go. the family came back to England and Ruth went to school in Fulham. I came back then in 1967 and went to school in Fulham, Fulham County, Girls High. Uh, Fulham was really rough then, it wasn't like (laughs) it is now, (laughs) you know, it was like, it was a very, very rough place, uh, very working class place. But it had loads of music. It had loads of gigs, the pubs, and but also it had the the skinheads uh, who followed Scar. So um, there was that contradiction going on between you know fascist people who hated black people, but they followed the music from the Caribbean. Ruth discovered reggae, and as the sixties merged into the seventies, she fell in love with punk too. She was devouring music, going to gigs, a whole new world opening up to her. Then school was over and Ruth found herself unemployed along with millions of others. She joined the Right to Work marches, making new friends and connections. Eventually she was offered a job as a designer at the Socialist Worker Party print shop. It wasn't long before she discovered the Rock Against Racism Collective. I got involved in Rock Against Racism because I was offered a job at the Socialist Worker Party print shop as a designer. So I took that job and i that's where I met um, the people who were just starting Rock Against Racism. And uh, I met people like Roger Huddle, who's another designer, uh, Sid Shelton, I already knew, and he got a job at the same time as me. I mean, we got involved straight away, went to the founding meetings, and which were huge, like, I don't know, 30 or 40 people crammed into Red Saunders studio, musicians and artists and It was a very empowering, self-empowering time. Rock Against Racism emerged in 1976 following a rise in racist attacks across the country. Originally it was conceived as a one-off concert, but then Eric Clapton declared his support for Enoch Powell at a concert in Birmingham. Clapton told the crowd that England had become, quote, too crowded and that Britain should, quote, get the foreigners out. He repeatedly shouted the National Front slogan, Keep Britain White. Joe Refford and Pete Bruno, who were part of an agitprop theatre group, wrote a letter with Roger Huddle to the NME, opposing Clapton's remarks. Quote, When I read about Eric Clapton's Birmingham concert when he urged support for Enoch Powell, I nearly puked. What's going on, Eric? You've got a touch of brain damage. So you're going to stand for MP and you think we're being colonised by black people. Come on. You've been taking too much of that Daily Express stuff. You know you can't handle it. Own up. Half your music is black. Your rock music's biggest colonist. 
You're a good musician, but where would you be without the blues and R&B? You've got to fight the racist poison, otherwise you degenerate into the sewer with the rats and all the money men who ripped off rock culture with their checkbooks and plastic crap. Rock was, and still can be, a real progressive culture, not a packaged mail-order, stick-on nightmare of mediocre garbage. Keep the faith. Black and white unite and fight. We want to organise a rank-and-file movement against the racist poison in rock music. We urge support. All those interested, please write to us. The letter ended, quote, P.S. Who shot the sheriff, Eric? It sure as hell wasn't you. Which was a reference to Clapton's huge hit with Bob Marley's I Shot the Sheriff. The letter received hundreds of replies. Across the country, local Rock Against Racism groups began forming. Often run by musicians themselves, they would find a venue and put on a club night. Ruth produced graphics for temporary hoardings, banners and leaflets, as well as organising gigs near her. Everybody mucked in, you know, if you got handed a screwdriver, you did it, you know what I mean, even if you never know what a screwdriver was. It was that sort of um, situation. For the first time ever, you didn't have to follow the rules. You could just do what you wanted. But there was one rule. We had rules. Don't allow the national front, the Nazis to get on the control of the stage, for example. What we did was we produced toolkits so that people could do it for themselves. So like a toolkit on um, how to put on a gig, uh, you know, yes, you can do it, even though you're 16. You can go to your local town hall and book it, you know, and put on some bands. You know, there, there were toolkits about how to build your own PA system, how to um, deal with management, band management, because that's sometimes a problem. So what we did was we provided information and also education, you know, like there's in temporary hoardings, there's articles about the rest of what was going on in South Africa, Soweto, the uprisings that were going on at the, that time and all over the world, different struggles. And also Ireland, the, the army was in, you know, Northern Ireland. Uh, on every street corner, there would be a, a soldier you know, and so we um, gave people information about the, all of those things. Did uh, you have many run-ins with the National Front or similar groups? Yes, they attacked our gigs on several occasions. The problem was that, that some of the bands had had NF followings. You know, the bands that chose to do raw gigs were in a difficult position, like Sham 69 is the most, uh, was the most difficult position they disbanded because of it because they had a national front following um and that those people used to come to their gigs and try and smash them up and it, it's a difficulty because you all come you know the, these kids who followed the national front came from the same place you know they grew up in the same area as the band they followed the band right from the very beginning you know it's a very difficult situation to negotiate and yeah I mean we 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 had to learn how to defend ourselves and the reggae bands were great help because they had uh they already knew about this violence <laughs> they already knew how to 
defend themselves. So we, we learned a lot along the way about what not to do, what to do. And we always made sure that people understood that it was very dangerous out there, you know, when you left the gig, for example. Although immense, the whole operation was run on a shoestring. All our money came from selling badges, which sounds ridiculous now, but that's where we got most of our money from because we sold millions of them and people actually wore badges all over their clothes in those days, didn't they? So we produced loads and loads of badges. But we were always, you know, close to the wire financially. Despite the sometimes chaotic atmosphere, the movement wielded huge power. Uh, we always had, at the end of every ragi, we always had a, a jam between the bands. And that was a very powerful statement, you know, to see a black and white band up there with their hands joined or dancing across the stage. You know, there's all sorts of photographs of that. It creates a unity amongst people. You know, a lot of people are isolated by racism in their communities and it provides a kind of inclusive vehicle for people like that to to know that there are white people out there who are in support of a multicultural, multiracial country. You know, that is very important. In 1978, Rock Against Sexism formed, the two groups collaborating at times. In 1979, Rock Against Racism organised a tour in the run-up to the general election, travelling across the country with bands like Stiff Little Fingers, Aswad and Gang of Four. By the early 80s, the organisation was winding up, but its legacy continued. Groups formed in Germany and Austria, holding concerts as a form of political demonstration against the far right. In 2002, music fans affiliated with United Against Fascism in a response to a resurgence of racist activity in Britain. They held a concert at the Astoria in London under the old Rock Against Racism slogan, Love Music, Hate Racism. You know, we didn't um, get rid of racism. Uh, you know, we didn't stop racial attacks. But we did change the attitudes of a whole generation, I think, we made it fashionable to actually be an anti-racist. Operating at the heart of Rock Against Racism was a pushback against the propaganda of empire. Um, in the first issue of Temporary Hoardings, David Widgery wrote um, an article called uh, What is Racism? It's all about how we are brainwashed because of our empire. It's all about empire and our treatment of other people and how we buy into it because we it gives us a certain, elevates our thinking about ourselves, you know, how we, how we think we're, we're better. I'll just read the first paragraph. What is racism? Racism as, is as British as eagles and baked beans. You grow up anti-black with gollywogs in the jam the black and white minstrel show on TV and CSE Dumbo history at school. Fascism is about Jubilee mugs and rural Britannia and how we won the war. Gravestones, bayonets, forced starvation and the destruction of the cultures of India and Africa was regrettable, of course, 
But without our empire, the world's inhabitants would be rolling in the mud still, wouldn't they? However lousy our football team or, or broken down our health service, we've got this private compensation that we're white, British and used to rule the waves. Bruce sees that same pushback within the Black Lives Matter movement today. I'm not saying that Ra actually has influenced them, but if you, what you asked me for, what, what is our legacy? I think it is thinking deeply about how we got to where we are, how who we are and who we are in relation to the rest of the world. And these are very important issues and they require thinking about yourself and how you relate to other people. And that's one of the most important legacies that you can ever pass down. This sort of, well, it's a community, building a community, not necessarily in the same area, but a community of of thinking and desire and, and wanting a better world. Although Rock Against Racism came to the end of its journey, Ruth hasn't finished hers. Today her focus is on the threat of climate change. We've got to save the planet and we can only do it together. You know, when I look at uh, what the big big multinationals are doing, trying to kill the bees and always other species are disappearing, I just I just feel like if somebody doesn't stop them, we can all stop them all over the world, you know. But it's about understanding that we can all participate in democracy, I mean, <laughs> in, in a way. Culture is working towards setting up a permanent space in Birmingham, a national museum telling the story of youth culture in Britain. While we wait for that to be completed, you can visit their current exhibition, Growing Up in Britain, A Hundred Years of Teenage Kicks, which is on until the 12th of February 2023 at the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum in Coventry. If you have stories you want to submit to the Museum of Youth Culture, see the show notes for a link to their website. You can also find them on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Join us next time on Rebel Women for more stories of rebellious youth.